This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. Hello and welcome back to the Stadio Podcast. I'm Musa Kwonga. I'm Ryan Hun. Ryan, how are you doing? I am all right. Thanks, man. How are you? I'm also all right. I'm also yeah. all right. Yes, yes, yes. Nothing dramatic to report. Yep, just, you know, keeping it moving. Yeah, we keeping hope everyone is staying safe, staying well. Yeah, we did that a little bit on Thursday with everything that's going on at the moment. And um, yeah, we just, just hope everyone's doing okay. We understand that a lot of people really aren't but um yeah love and thoughts going out strap yourselves in the next hour is hopefully going to be ludicrous yes. escapism and also here's the thing no matter how tough life is at the moment please comfort yourselves that you're not as ridiculous as some of the takes are going to hear in the next hour i mean from you <laughs> my takes are going to be on point <laughs> quick bit of admin this is a pre-record if you're wondering why we haven't mentioned your team qualifying or not qualifying for the euros or any other results that's why <laughs> No stadium on Thursday, no Wright's house this week, but go check Counterpress with Flo and the gang. They are going mm. still. And then normal schedule resumes the following week. So today, we're going to do a bit on Manchester United's takeover. Mm. We'll do a bit on the Beckham documentary. Yeah, so many thoughts on this. We were going to do some stuff on the World Cup, weren't we? But I think Six hosts. <laughs> oh my goodness. Maybe we'll do that at the end, just yeah. if, we, if we have some time. But mm. um, let's get into it after this. Let's do it. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it 
you can work out in it. You can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. All right, man. So this Manchester United takeover, Sheikh Jassim, mm. it was announced, has pulled out of the Manchester United ownership. It's not really a race. If it was a race, it's, it's like, it's been going on for a long time. Mm. It's more of a sack race. <laughs> but it looks like Sir Jim Ratcliffe and Ineos, or head of Ineos, is going to acquire a 25% stake in the club, which will give him sporting control. Mm. Unreal, really. Well, do you know what? I think actually, we've only done a bit of reading. This broke on Saturday, right? Which is so the equivalent. There would be, there would yeah, be yeah. more details coming yeah. out, but yeah, yeah. it could be a little bit win-win. But I'm intrigued as a Manchester United fan to hear your thoughts on it. I would say this, of the two bids, of the two bidders, I prefer Ratcliffe's offer just because I think it's better than an individual or group of individuals owns a club rather than a state. Mm. And I also think, um, I just think that's this, fundamentally that's just better. In terms of the details of the bid, if you look at the infrastructure he's got at other places, he has a mixed record at the other places he's run, both on and off the field. But I just think he's someone fundamentally who cares about sporting outputs. And that fundamentally matters. I know that's a very, very big, because I, I don't want to sort of give an alternate bidder to a state bidder the plaudits of being potential saviour. I just yeah, think- uh, let's just, Sir, Sir, Jim, Sir Jim Ratcliffe is not a saviour and he's not an angel and he's, you know, I mean. I, I just think it'll be a better run organisation from top to bottom if Ratcliffe's in charge. as accountability. A club where the sporting goals are primary, and I can't believe I've had to say that sentence. A club where the sporting goals are primary is always going to have my favour as a bid. And that would mm. be what he brought to the table. It's not confirmed yet. It looks like it's uh, pretty much going through. It will mean, however, that the Glazers will stay. Mm. So not entirely what Manchester United fans wanted. But my first instinct when I saw this was that this is stage one of Ratcliffe eventually owning Manchester United in its entirety. I just think the, the money from the jump for all of it was a lot. This is a Newcastle sliding doors moment. Newcastle obviously went through hell under Mike Ashley and actually endured far worse than United. At least United had trophies oh, God, to yeah. the gloom. Newcastle sliding doors moment. Newcastle, you know, let's say that Saudi basically, sorry, the, no, no it's Saudi. Let's say Saudi walked away from, <laughs> away from the winning. T- it went let's through the Saudi, Premier League I mean, I mean, okay, proper PF. owners test. Let's see PF walked away from the bidding table. Mm. There would have been other takers for Newcastle eventually because it's an incredible club. And I just think in the context of the, of how old these institutions are, both Newcastle and Manchester United, it's worth waiting around a couple more years for a more suitable bidder. I just think yeah. that's my, that will always be my view. And with United, it's the same. Yes, the Glazers have been there for de- a couple of decades now, and it's been brutal um, at times, but it's worth waiting a couple more years for the right bidder. Mm. Just come this far. Because once you go into the state ownership model, it becomes pretty much irreversible because who can afford the, who can afford the salaries now? Like yes. Saudi have to, Saudi have to own Newcastle basically forever now because who's going to pay those salaries? Who's going to keep the expectation up? 
And if they sell it, it's a hard landing because the expectations in sales, wages have gone so high now mm. that, that supporters, that, that, that's a wedding that has, that's a marriage that has to last forever. Mm. So I'm just glad, I'm glad that United avoided that fate, to be honest. I'm glad they avoided it. Maybe we could do a deeper thing on Jim, Jim Ratcliffe and we'll do something and stuff well, yeah, like that yeah, when yeah, it's yeah, all yeah, gone through, because I think it's, it needs, it requires something that I think is going to take a little bit more reading, but yeah, he will attract deserved scrutiny if the big, oh yeah. Through, oh sure. my God. But then yeah, at the end, yeah. <laughs> not, not, but, but like at the end of the day, it's so hard now with the money involved in football. We've talked about this before. It's just like mm. when you have an individual who is wealthy enough to purchase a stake this big in a football club this big, Mm. chances are they're probably not going to be the wokest person you've ever met. Yeah, well, this is the thing I just like. I mean, it's funny because we're in a week where the EU um, may be sanctioning or maybe charging Elon Musk in relation to disinformation on the platform formerly known as Twitter. I'm not going to say the letter he's now calling it because that's ridiculous. Um, and that's just a reminder that when you have mm. an entity owned by individuals as opposed to clubs, it's easier to apply pressure. Mm. Like, look, look how hard it's been to apply pressure to Manchester City on, on the charges, financial charges against them. So, you know, whatever Ratcliffe's um, failings, from a business perspective, mm. you at least have a higher power there. Mm. And there's not really so much of a higher power. And that's really my only, it's my only, it's my only real reason for preferring the two bids, him, him with the two bidders. Um, all right, well, let's revisit that another yeah. time. I was going to say, like I said, I think it's, for me, the first thing I saw when that happened, it looks like that's stage one of an eventual Ratcliffe total takeover. You know like how Stan Kroenke did at Arsenal, actually? Mm. It was very incremental. Yes. Now, there's an owner that's turned it around. Well, yeah, I mean, like, turn, turned it around, extent, turned it yeah, around by like, getting out of the way. <laughs> yeah, and after, after intense, after intense yeah. pressure. But again, again, accountability. Is it that easy to apply that pressure? To a state. No, really I mean isn't. when you have like yeah, him and his it's obviously Stan and Josh Cronky is the main he's the main guy at Arsenal, I think, out of he he's the one who has mm. the control. Mm. You look at what they did with the Nuggets. Yeah. But yeah, like, I think it's one of those that obviously is you, you still need to I mean, yeah. I don't want to get my two kind of like, well, oh, isn't it a shame? But it is still a shame that these are the only kind of people who have any chance of owning football clubs anymore. It is a shame. It is a shame. Right. Fan ownership, man. This is actually something yeah. that would be fine. Like, for example, if, if, if Sir Jim Ratcliffe had 25% stake in Manchester United and the other, like, 75% or something was owned by small individual shareholders. Who would leap at the chance to own a piece of United. Yeah. You just want to buy a Munich-style AGM with, like, shareholders standing up and jabbing fingers. If I had shares in Arsenal, I'd love to go to the AGM and I'd just be like... You'd, you'd, be, you'd be in the full kit in the front row. You sold Scotty Cannon. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck are you keeping Frank Lampard for when he sold Matty Holland and Scott Cannon? It'd be interrupting him every two minutes. <laughs> anyway, speaking of Manchester United, yep. let's talk about the Beckham documentary because mm. it's been out a couple of weeks now. You watched it this, week uh, this weekend. Yes. What did you think? It didn't do David Beckham, the footballer, justice. Interesting. It didn't do him justice. Um, okay. And also, what was interesting was what was left out as much as what was included. Ooh, like what? Right, so it's a four-part documentary on Netflix. Um, mm -hmm. Directed by? Fisher Stevens. Interesting choice um, 
of director. No, not that's not criticism. But okay, so in terms of the emissions, there's a moment. So you're like caught up in this of the romance, um, all in. You're all in. You know, in terms of just an emotional arc. Mm. And in terms of emotional arc, there's, look, there's there's things that are obviously left out for reasons of awkwardness or whatever. But the bit towards the final, and Victoria Beckham, she's there. And she goes, "Oh, as you come to the end of this," and she sort of looks at the camera. She goes, "This kind of this documentary. There's a lot of things I haven't said before this." And she was going to say documentary mm. or what? This therapy. And I thought. There's the there deception. Go. There's the deception. There's the lie. This isn't therapy. Mm. And when you say that, it gives the lie to so much else because you can call it therapy, but if it's therapy, what, what's therapy? Therapy is, it's catharsis. It's um, getting to your deepest feelings, leading to some kind of a resolution, right? Now, if this is therapy, if this is catharsis, if this is about a brand who are so conscious of how they're perceived, there is no mention of his ambassadorship of Qatar. None. Exactly. Yeah. None at all. And that is the biggest blow their brand has taken maybe in the last five years, decade. A huge blow. Yeah. And when he talks about just wanting to keep going and we keep it moving, the moment I retired, I was on the plane to, into my, to Miami. And it's like, straight away? Yeah, straight away. And you've got him in front of the lights. And you're like, hang on a minute, but Qatar is vast. And the emission speaks volumes because if this is a really a therapy session, then you've got to be talking about how could we mess that up? How could we be the couple that everyone adored and doesn't talk about him as a gay icon? There was a whole thing. It doesn't talk about yeah. him. Yeah, yeah, but this is the thing. It hints at it, but I was thinking, they can't go there. They can't talk about the gay icon status in the early 2000s because it means having to talk about how that status was revoked by Attitude magazine. Mm. And when he talks about walking the streets and getting pelters and being abused in the, um, you know, in, in, the, in the months after the World Cup and going down the street and people hating him and everyone having a comment and everyone having comments. So I thought this is devastating to hear. And also that is exactly the reaction that a gay couple get for holding hands or kissing in the street in a lot of the country, well, in a, in a place like Qatar, like that you lived, you lived the queer experience for months and it was horrifying and you'd lived it. Mm. So watching this documentary, I'm like, wow, it's amazing. Don't get me wrong. This, the things that it gets right. First of all, let me just give credit to him and his incredible mental resilience. No, no, I, I think you're right. Sorry to cut in. I yeah. think you're right to raise that first because I think that is the single most, uh, the single biggest criticism of the documentary is that it doesn't, you, but I mean, also though, you you were never going to get that because it's it's essentially- Totally, of course. It's, it's going through the Beckham filter before it goes through. But, and the amount of people that were going to sign off on that, it was it was always going to be a- Totally, of course, of course. A kind of essentially a four-part marketing piece but there are some good stuff in it but that is i think for me the, the single there's there's two there's two criticisms that is the ma the major one mm. there are multiple criticisms actually the second one i'll save for a little bit later because it's a jokey one but but yeah i think that i also i i also think that from an actual pr point of view mm. if they'd gone into some of that stuff it would have been quite interesting and it would have been it and would have been better, I think. I, I think, think it would have been better, actually. Yeah. But but for us and for fans, not for necessarily for them. And I think no, that no. I think that what we forget is that I think the base not the base level, but I think the general people who are casual casually into football, casually into the kind of the the whole environment of it, mm. it's not really as big a deal for them. No. No. You know? So actually this isn't there to serve us. It's there to serve 
the kind of the wider thing and even like acknowledging it I, would have made people I think, think it about works it. I think actually this documentary it works for I think it works for the for the audience it was intended for but I also think that audience is smaller than they think it is true yeah well, how how did you feel about it I mean, I, I, it's interesting that you said that because I had to remind myself of all of that stuff at the end of it. No, in fact, actually what happened was uh, something came up about his comments. He was at the Qatar Grand Prix last week. Oh, and right. I think he, something came up about him. Some, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was about like, he, he mentioned something, what it's like. I saw it in Qatar and it was fine kind of thing. It was one of those comments, you know? Yeah, yeah. Through that documentary, I was just like, God damn it, Bex, I love you. Oh my God, what a hero. Everything you went through. Oh mm. my God. And it made me forget temporarily. Mm. That's what I was saying. So actually what I mean by them not keeping a lot of that stuff out of the way is that if it temporarily made me forget, it's made and we most talk people, about it. It's made most people forget. Exactly. So yeah. it, from that point of view, I think it's going to 100% do what it wants to do. I think so. So I think that's our... Fucking annoying, woke, meh, left oh. kind of like criticism of the documentary from what, from a, a bigger standpoint. Let's focus on the stuff that it does include because it also has some unbelievable features. Yeah. Oh my God. What? Roy Keane, star of the show again. He's amazing. Pantanar, maybe. He's, a, he's amazing. Actually. Gary Neville does a great Sal, job. Salgado. Salgado, low key MVP. That man's, that man's got stories. That man's got. We need to get. Do you know what? I, right, I think right we backs, start, yeah. right backs always have all the stories. They do, don't they? Yeah, like, like you Why? can say if you can. Yeah, because you know what? Because they're so chill. They're so chill. Look, you think about it, apart from a couple of the outliers, people like Azpilicueta, those kind of characters, Paulo Ferreira, mm. those characters are just low key, and they're just always picked. Albert Ferreira at Barca, like they just they just sit there, they're in their bag, and they don't bother anyone. They just do mm. their business and just. They keep it moving. And I think also that they're not glamour position. They're very, re- they're right back until quite recently. It's very ready to be a glamour position. That famous quote, no one grows up wanting to be Gary Neville. Yeah, which is weird because he's so absurdly harsh on himself. I think that's his, that was his, I think that, that was Gary Neville's way of keeping himself elite. That whole thing about, oh, I was just, you know, I was mustard on the side. David was the beef. And I was like, no, you weren't. But because we saw how he struggled when he didn't have yeah. that combination, not that Sagada wasn't amazing, but when Beckham didn't have his his right flank as he wanted it. It was really difficult for him. Other stars, I would say, um, I mean, Ronaldo is just great in everything he does. And Luis Figo has the most incredible line of all where he talks about playing against, they were like, oh, let's organize a match. Like, you know, Figo, Zidane, Beckham, Roberto Carlos, Ronaldo, against, against Romeo, Romeo and his mates. And Figo was like, a game like that. And then his eyes just sort of go more intense. And he goes, <laughs> I'll kill them. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> that is absolutely, and he meant it. He was like, if we play this game, it's going to be 17 nil. You could see it. That man was, and I was like, there. Yeah. All of a sudden, Luis Figo turns, turn, he has that ability to turn the energy on of a man who has very much had a pig's head thrown at him. Because what you realize <laughs> is these like, elite athletes, they're all still footballers. Yeah. Like, they, they, all they, 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 they all, yeah. They're fundamental, like North Star, the competitive nature, the, the, the delusional, the delusional drive level, almost the delusional level of drive is what sets them apart from 900% of people ever walked the planet. And mm. it's in all of them. Like yeah, the, the, see, the seething intensity is in it all. They can't hide it. They try to, but you say the right thing and the mask comes right off. It's incredible. 
there's that thing that Cantona says where he's talking about that adrenaline. You lose that adrenaline, you know. And um, talk about what's in there as well. Before we forget, in terms of All Star cast, obviously Sir Alex Ferguson there, looking yeah. surpri- surprisingly humble and considerate. Oh, can we just um, you know, send our condolences out to Sir Alex and the Ferguson family? He lost his wife Kathy last week. Yeah, who was an absolute cornerstone of his life. Um, obviously. Mm on and away from the field and who encouraged him to stay on at United to whom we owe yeah. a huge debt um, and who he speaks so warmly in his in his autobiography mm-hmm. which is a tremendous read by the way he looked really really almost contrite like like there's a gentleness there in the conversation it's interesting isn't it yeah it's, yeah there was it, a kind a note of note I made yeah mm, like I was watching it going you don't really like how it played out no. Like the, the whole the whole scene when he kicked the boot and it hit mm. Beckham in the head, that mm. was not meant to happen. Like that wasn't no. the thing. That was not a desired outcome for him because I think his thing was always the controlled explosion. Yeah. Um. And I wonder if David Beckham and the, here's a here's a real hot take I've just thought about now. Maybe they both got closer to each other than they realised. Yep. Like than they thought or than they desired because 100%. look brought him around the squad thirteen fourteen years old from London. Very talented kid um, from the, from East London comes up to Manchester regularly, meeting everyone, and they're joking, they're making fun of him, like Steve Bruce, and by the way, Paul Ince still incredibly tightly wound. Oh my goodness, like he's brilliant in the documentary, and also <laughs> this man wants to get out there and get up. This man wants to get booked within two minutes. Listen, anyone <laughs> anyone who gets interviewed in their snooker room isn't chill. That man's That's not a rule. Chill that is a rule of any documentary. <laughs> <laughs> Just no. Oh, oh my god, like. Sorry, so, 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 no. But, but, no we're, coming, we're going to come back to those, those intense characters. Um, Ferguson and Beckham, we, I knew they had a close relationship, but when you see just how close it was, you were like, this is still painful for both of them at some level. Yeah. Even the fact they wanted to send him to Barcelona, which would have been a much better fit for his talents. Even the fact, because you, know, you have a, a slightly kind of declining Mendieta at that point at Barcelona on the right foot, you know, mm. and you've got Clivert still in the mix. Barcelona would have been a far better fit for Beckham's talents. And God knows what the arc of Barcelona would have been with him there instead of, you know, the emerging champion. Yeah, but they did all right. (laughs) They they did, but here's my point. For Beckham as a footballer, Ferguson knew he had to sell Beckham. You you can see why, actually. If you look at all of it, if you look at Mm. the trajectory of it, that marriage was destined to end. Mm. It was just destined because I think the focus of the Beckhams as a couple was shifting away. They wanted different things. Like, how often do you hear a document? It'll be very rarely that you see a documentary about football and hear the emphasis on family. Mm. Like, I honestly think that Victoria Beckham is a devoted parent who happened to be a world, you know, a world yeah, famous yeah. pop star. Like, at, at the core, she's like, I'm, I, I want to be a parent. And that's the priority. And that, that's so powerful and so strong. And the incentive to be a parent that builds a lifestyle, a living that, and not only feeds her, but feeds her kids and has a lifestyle for them. Those tensions, those necessary tensions, I think, led to the end of that. But I think they both regret it. That was the sense I got from, from watching yeah. this. My, one of my favourite things, though, it was really comedic, was when Beckham's talking about, like, it didn't change me. Like, I didn't change or anything. It cuts back to Alex <laughs> and he's like, it changed him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 uh. I was like, oh, that made me laugh so much. 
There's another because, one of those. Yeah, the, the, Kate, 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 because no, I've no I was going to, I was going to say that the, the the point you made about Sir Alex Ferguson and Beckham is a really interesting one. I think it's right, and I, I, all I was thinking through it was kind of like, remember when they did Tim Duncan's jersey retirement at the San Antonio Spurs? Yeah, and there's that famous meme of Pop looking at him, Greg Popovich looking at him, and it's like, find you someone who looks at you the way that Pop looks at Tim Duncan. Mm. And I, wonder, I, I kind of was thinking about this throughout the, the dynamic and the way that they were telling the story about Beckham and Sir Alex. And I was like, Beckham should have been his Tim Duncan, actually. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Or maybe it's more like Tony Parker because Tony Parker obviously was allowed to leave and he went and played those couple of years at the Hornets. But like, he was always Pop's like there's a there's a thing that Tony Parker said talking about Pop and he's just like you know he's like a father to me and you know I came over from from France and like you know but he goes harder on me than anyone else because of that mm. and I think there was maybe a touch of that with I think it's actually probably more similar with Tony Parker than Tim Duncan because I think Tim Duncan was a different Tim Duncan was more of a Gary Neville mm. yes really. yes um and I think with with Sir Alex and 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 Beckham looking at the way that Sir Alex Ferguson was talking about Beckham. All I felt was, yeah, you wanted to be the person who kind of protected him through all that, which sounds really wanky, but I think that is actually kind of what Ferguson's energy is like sometimes. And I think that when, I think maybe Ferguson also now looks back and probably regrets some of the things that he did and the way that he handles it, because it's it's really interesting this, like you saw how he softened towards Fenger after after retirement, especially, Mm. and especially when Arsenal stop becoming a threat when they move to the Emirates Stadium. And you forget how much of a hard fucking bastard he was. It was written off because he had so many trophies. Because, yeah, exactly. But actually, yeah. it could be a fucking bit of a, you know what I mean? It's like different time, different era. And you, but the thing that I find really interesting is how you see those guys soften, right? When they get old. And reflective. And mm. there's a, there's a, there's an energy around those kind of individuals or icons because I think Sir Alex Ferguson is an icon. He's an iconic manager. He's a yeah, he's a question. Premier League icon. He's a you know he's like yeah, he's a name. Mm. And seeing someone in that period of their life where they're getting really reflective and they had such a they had their kind of like fingerprints on so much of so much history of a specific field, mm. and seeing them talk about it in a certain way, it's it's a sweet spot for me that I could like, I could, I could watch, do you know what? Actually, I could have watched eight hours as just Sir Alex Ferguson talking about this. Yes. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. And yeah, I would have been yeah, fine yeah, actually. Yeah. Or Roy Keane, but maybe peppered with some Roy Keane stuff. What's he buying? A pen? A pen? That is, pen. oh my God. A pen. That's the documentary we'll never see. We'll never see the Roy Keane documentary, but my God. I would, I, I want to see it. But I want to see they're, it. They're, they're related, you know, so Look, I know one in a bit of a that no, no, didn't I, really I, make I, any no, sense. No, 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 it was great because you actually gave me a couple of thoughts. Um look, I read Sir Alex Ferguson's autobiography so long ago, but the one thing which, that Which one? Yeah, true. I <laughs> think it was the um I think it was the McIlvany one. There's a phrase he uses about David Beckham, and here's the thing, because in that autobiography that he doesn't really devote that much to individual players. There are like sort of paragraphs here and there. There's there's obviously the description of the way that gigs played. Was it the cocker spinal chasing foil, a piece of foil in the wind or something? <laughs> I think I think that was it. 
What and the, des- the description of um, David Beckham, he says, when the chips were down, David Beckham was never found wanting. And it is the greatest- That's, that's he, so true, you know. The praise that is, I remember thinking, when I read the book, it's years ago, I remember thinking, oh my goodness, he has praised, he's given greater credit to David Beckham's mental resilience than any other football he's talked about. And you saw, and here's the thing, ironically, the reason that Beckham found it relatively easy to deal with the Qatar criticism is because he'd seen everything. He'd seen the UK mm. as worst, and that's actually great credit to him as an individual that he felt he could return to the UK after everything had been through. Like this man was the absolute golden boy of football, and it could have, it would have broken almost anyone else. Like we could have had a serious. We only, and I, I'm very, I was very angry at the UK watching that. Like when I watched um, oh, God, England yeah. specifically, when I saw the treatment he got after the World Cup, and even then, like we didn't have social media, it would have been even worse. Can you imagine the age of social media? My God. Actually, no, weirdly enough, in the age of social media, it might be even better because you had multiple outlets. You, had, you would have had more support. You would have had tabloids going after him, but a lot of fans going, actually, it was a terrible refereeing decision, in my opinion. I mean, to give him a, a it should have been two yellows, in my yeah. opinion. Like the, the Simeone red should have been two yellows. And by the way, Simeone, absolute star of the show. He's so, he's so great. He's, am- he's yeah. amazing. He's amazing. Shout out to him for being on it. Shout out for Beckham getting him involved. But you see what Beckham goes through and you see his mental strength and you see all the stuff you said about Ferguson wanting him as the cornerstone. He would have bridged the gap perfectly between the eras that Ferguson was building because he would have been able to say, this is what United's all about. And there's a part of Beckham, like if you look at the man, he loves to be loved, right? Mm-hmm. But he's strangely, not adrift, because I, I still think there's a lot of love for Beckham. I mean, there's a huge amount. Of, I think, look, put it this way, there's not a, there's not a town in the country where Beckham doesn't turn up and not get like a gorgeous meal cooked yeah. for him and family. So there, there's a lot of love for him. And I, and I, even despite the Qatar stuff, I still kind of want that for him because of what he gave to so many people. At the same time, when you leave United after, at that period where he'd won six Premier League titles in no time at all, in no time at all, you don't sever your connection with the fan base, but there's, a, there's, a, there's an opportunity to deepen it even further if that makes sense. Mm. And I, I think he regrets not deepening it because you look at some of the careers he made thereafter and you're like, this is kind of a disaster. Like, I know you want to go to Madrid, but Figo's right there in your spot. Mm. Then you go to the LA Galaxy and that thing where, you know, you're not happy and Victoria's happy because the family are there and it's great, but you haven't made a, a decision that basically nurtures everything. And that makes you restless. So then you're like wandering here and there. And it just, it's almost like, he mentions like wanting to sign Neymar for Inter Miami. And Neymar's a great example because David Beckham and Neymar had incredible first halves to their career, their playing careers. And the second half of their playing careers kind of, from a sporting point of view, you can talk about being MLS pioneers. I don't really buy that. I think they kind of both, compared to their standards, they dropped off sharply. Mm. Yeah, I think the, one of the things I thought was just how constantly on the move career thing was a bit weird. It and was weird. It was weird. Stepping stepping back. I, I think you, you mentioned Barcelona before. It would have, imagine what David Beckham's playing career looks like if it's just Manchester United, Barcelona, LA Galaxy on the on the Wikipedia. And this is exactly. And Barcelona was a move that someone someone who wants you to have a soft landing sends you to Barcelona. Someone that wants it's you, that, yeah, yeah, but yeah, he just yeah. didn't want it, man. So no, I think he, he, he did it. He didn't. You know, he didn't. He didn't. But like, even when Ferguson was kicking him out, he was like, "Here's the best footballing fit for you." That was interesting. 
they clearly chosen a narrative that this was clearly like a hero's journey of yeah the plot was basically the idea was okay the whole emotional thrust is meets a situation with adversity overcomes it through the support of those around you that does not mm. work for his football because everyone that watched the 1999 treble season knows that David Beckham was absolutely lights out from August until May. There was no moment where he looked at the crowd and suddenly thought, oh, I, I'm not believing in myself. I'm looking at the crowd and suddenly I'm going to get... No, David Beckham was incredible. That was what was so mind-blowing about it. And it didn't do David Beckham football justice. His resilience, like the guy came out of the 98 World Cup, came back to Old Trafford and blew everyone away. He had almost mm. 30 assists that season in all competitions. He was incredible, Ryan. And that doesn't... Sorry. That didn't fit the narrative of the documentary, which was, oh, like, deep depression, his football struggled, he, played, he misplaced some passes. Those are probably only three passes he misplaced all season. I'm being slightly like, you know, but he was an astonishing, and I'm like, why were you afraid of that? Why were you afraid of it? Because then it doesn't put him in, and then so when he gets to Madrid, you then don't have a full picture of just how brilliant he was at United, and there's this disconnect. Yeah, I think that form-wise, it didn't really feel like Beckham's career was that extreme. It didn't feel like it was like, incredible, really struggled. Incredible, really struggled. He was pretty, even when he wasn't playing incredible, he was pretty good. He was, like, I think a, that, eight, he was like an eight, eight and a half out of ten yeah, I think, on average. Well, I, mean, I, United, I, yeah. I said this on, on Writer's House on Friday. I said, David Beckham is, has become simultaneously the most overrated, underrated, and just about rated footballer I can remember. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's weird. He is all of it at once, yep. depending on who you speak to. But um, my main beef with this, I remember getting really, I did the kind of almost like, you know, the Leo Dica Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the screen meme. Mm. I kind of did that. He didn't win the free kick against Greece. No, no, no. Right. Absolutely. And the thing that they used in it was he gets fouled and then all of a sudden the free kick is being taken 15 yards further forward than it was. And I was just like, why are you, if the EU were going after Musk. <laughs> Disinformation. <laughs> <laughs> but do you know what I mean? I know that, that this happens all the time in documentaries and, you know, Netflix docu sports documentaries in specifically, you know, you look at stuff like Drive to Survive and even stuff that happened with Full Swing. And there are certain things in there where you're like, oh, come on, man, you don't need to... You don't need to cut the narrative up that much to make it fit. It didn't, you know, oh my God, how ironic. It didn't trust the sporting drama. The interesting bits for me was just hearing from the people that they got to talk on it, which is just, I think that in itself is a testament to Beckham's pull and Beckham's rep among professional footballers is that people, everyone talked. And Roy Keane as well is interesting because Roy never says a bad word about him, really. This is where Roy Keane's amazing, right? Because the character that Roy Keane puts out on TV and punditry mm. totally fits into the kind of person who would be like, yeah, but why has he shaved his head? Or like, why does he do this? Or why does he do this? You know, he should just knuckle down and blah, blah, blah. Roy Keane never does that. No. It's actually Neville that's just like, oh, why are you doing that, mate? And Roy Keane's just like, I don't care. He trained hard. He worked hard. Like, and Roy Keane is the first one to be like, and that season when it, it basically everyone kind of got a free reign to do what they wanted to Beckham because mm. the crowds were baying for blood, right? And Roy Keane was just like, yeah, well, they forgot that there's a lot of people on our side who can step in as well. Oh my God. Do you know that what I mean? Was, that was terrifying. But it just, I think that just shows like, there's like almost like a, and I know that Roy Keane has had some famed bust-ups, but I think now he's in that phase of his career as well, where he's looking back and being like, yeah, I made some mistakes here. I could have done this. I could have done this. 
he's got this like code. Yeah. And there's a complete, I, yeah, yeah, I kind of yeah. love it actually. I'm not going to lie. I think actually, I think it's I'm making, becoming a bit of a Roy Keane. Yeah, he is. It's like, making, because Roy Keane. I never thought I would be. That, well, that's, a, that's a, they, they always say in sport, keep the main thing the main thing. The primary focus must be football. And, you know, Roy Keane and Gary Neville, they were aligned on this with, with Beckham. Mm. Like, he always has switched into football mode and it was his priority. Yeah. He could do all the wild stuff, but it was, well, not, was it really that wild? Like driving down to see your partner like the dead of night? It's not wild. It's not, you'll be tired, but it's not wild. Uh, you're not hitting it's the not, town. Do you know what? It's not wild now for footballers, but it felt wild then. Right, right. And I think... Just something on, um, before I forget, first of all, shout out to Fabio Capello, who looked incredible. That man is really living life and loving life. But also, mm. Florentino Perez confirming that he is the final boss of football, sitting in front of all those European Cups. <laughs> sitting there. That bit when Florentino Perez goes, you know, they were like, oh, why did you sign him? What was the imperative? Oh, we tripled our revenue. That was so sinister. If, if, so- if, I, if, I, if, I was a, if I was a serious footballer, and I'm not, I'm not serious, never was, but if I, you know, you hear a thing like that about what the plan was, and I mm. wonder if that's the first time Beckham's ever actually heard it that explicit. But that is I a little bit, sting, man. That's a bit of a gut punch. Yeah. Because you weren't signed for your football. Because, look, it's, again, it's what the players don't say as much as they do say. Like, you know, when you talk about footballers talk about each other, like, oh, the first moment training, they blew us away. Mm. Salgado was like, we've got to see how this is going to work. Like they still weren't fully convinced, like even mm. after the first glance, the first whatever, like, is he going to be that guy? And he pulled it together in the end. He did. I remember watching a lot of the games actually when he was in Madrid. And again, look, it was a problem yeah. of systems and whatever. He did struggle because... That was classic Revista La Liga days. Oh my God, yeah. And I absolutely loved um, watching I mean, early 2000s football. It was incredible because he had such a spread of talent. So good. Because oh, Sunday night. Oh, dude. Hook into oh. my veins. Oh my goodness. Oh. Oh, taking me back, taking me back. A simpler time. <laughs> a simpler time. But I just wonder if he looks at the second half of his career and thinks, if I could have replayed that. I wonder whether he makes that early galaxy move when he does. Right, because that to me, yeah, he could have hung around at Madrid. I think so. Or you, I or mean, when he turns up, when, he, when he turned up at Milan on loan, and you look at that side. I think we mentioned it where it's got like Sadov, Pirlo, Kaka. He loved it. All there. He loved Milan as well. And that was a more natural fit. I mean, I, I, you looked at the, the footage of what MLS was back then compared to what it is now. And actually, that's one of the, the big things that comes away from, that I came away from this documentary thinking is that, yeah, actually, MLS deserves a hell of a lot of credit for how quickly they got their shit together. Because they really even though some people, yet, yeah. some people love to pop, for, like pop, you know, take pops at the league. And I know that. And I know that even, you know, the quality still isn't of a top, top European league yet. But you look at what they were going through, or you look, you look at what the league was compared to what it is now, it's unrecognisable. Yeah. And I think he has got, I think David Beckham has a large part to play in that because I think he raised, if David Beckham, if Beckham doesn't go, you don't get Gerard at Galaxy. I don't yeah. think you get Zlatan at Galaxy. Um, it's... You know, you saw the what happened in the Saudi Pro League. Once Ronaldo went, mm. it kind of opened the, you know, football, f- few footballers like to be the first one to do anything. Yes, yes. You know, but it's very, it's, mu- it's much easier to follow. The um, one thing, the one thing I had an issue with the MLS stuff, the one bit, the one bit that made me actually feel a flicker of anger was when he was trying to get 
the permanent move to Milan and the owner of mm. LA Galaxy goes, no, you're not going. We own this, him. We owned him. Yeah, that was, and I, I, didn't I know. absolutely, I, there's some, that triggered something. Not he very, was our player or we, we had we, his contract. He was under, he was, con- he was under contract. Player. He was under contract. We, owned, we him. owned him. And I thought that right there, I despised that. But if I you think those two, every, th- yeah, that yeah, we yeah. own him yeah. and we signed him because we tripled our revenue. They're kind of, they're two That's, rich dudes who own football clubs or run football clubs. Ha, and, Beckham is our toy. Beckham's our toy. Yeah. He's our asset. Yeah, he's an asset. And no matter exactly. and that, yeah. there was almost a kind of weird class thing going on there, which is like, no matter what this person achieves, no matter how they run around, they're my, they're my, like a, like a racehorse mm. or like a, I, I, I heard that and I just thought, I've got to talk about this in the podcast because I was, I was disgusted by that. Mm. I was disgusted by that. Like, you don't talk about an employee like that. He's an employee. He's an employee under contract. But it's an energy that only very, very rich people who never have to worry about not getting what they want have. Yes. You know? Which is why it delights me when people say no to huge amounts of money. Mm. Um, just because it's like, no, I've got agency actually. Like Luca, yeah, yeah. Lu- Luca Modric. The bag was thrown at that man this summer. Yeah. It was thrown at him. He's like, it's Madrid. I'm like, good. Why would I? Yeah, I'm good. So yeah, all in all, fun watch. Yes. Learned some stuff. Yeah. Good to see some old bits thrown up that I haven't seen for a while. Yeah. The interviews with individuals, I think, is the real magic in this documentary. Mm. Biggest heartbreaking moment. And this goes with saying, with you saw, you know, in a documentary that has had such a heartbreaking career in many ways because there were real genuine heartbreaking moments for Beckham in his career Mm. and you know the footage of him coming off at the end of his final game for PSG and still the most heartbreaking moment in the whole four episodes seeing Phil Neville being interviewed is is into Miami office oh Ryan (laughs) Ryan (laughs) he didn't know Musa at that time he didn't know (laughs) the journey can I (laughs) He didn't know what was about to happen. <laughs> oh, Ryan. Can I... <laughs> Poor Phil. Can I... Phil Neville catching strays out here. Look, can I um, shout for his parents who got to go on an incredible journey with him? And mm. in particular, his mum is just an incredible um, source of strength for him and his father too. His dad, to, to be a Manchester United fan, obsessed with Bobby Charlton in that era, to see your own son go and arrive in United Legend, which is, what for, which is what Beckham is. Beckham to arrive in United Legend alongside Charlton. The emotional journey for his dad must have been incredible. Mm. And just a quick shout for the people around the United camp and see how loyal they are to this day, like Albert Morgan, the kit man, and yeah. Kathy Cripps, the receptionist, who won't talk about the most painful parts. Yeah. And, you're, and you're like, that's why those people work at those clubs, because even now, with nothing at stake, they still don't divulge. And yeah. I, must, I must admit, when I was watching this, I remember thinking, you see when Paul Pogba came back to United and tried to make it work. Mm. And I was thinking, this documentary reminded me of the romance that exists within football, still at its highest level, still with all the brutal things that footballers go through, put themselves through. Like the romance of Manchester United mm. at that point and the, the, fam- the word family and how, how family is, is such a bond. Yeah. And how the breakup is so devastating. And it made me like kind of, it made me want reconciliations that are never going to happen. Like it made me want mm. a keen Ferguson sit down, which we're probably never going to get. Um, oh, that was actually, ooh. did you see Roy Keane when Beckham was on 
stick to football. No, Neville's thing that Ian's no, no, no. doing. No. When when Beckham said stuff about the things that Ferguson did, Keane kept repeating this thing, and his face would go really serious, and he just kept saying power and control. And I was just like, "Fuck me, something happened there. <laughs> something <laughs> something wow. happened there." I don't know if I rem- if I'm being a bit revisionist how I remember this, but. All of a sudden, he was going to Celtic out of nowhere, and I remember it being really shocking. Yes, is that how it happened? That is he, how yes, it happened. Right? There was no like, there was lost. no real. Like, there weren't any like rumors going on for months or protracted stuff. It was just all of a sudden he did something and ba- he was bounced. Yes, that's exactly how it happened. He did an interview with um, the club's official channel MUTV, and those things are like pretty anodyne. Nothing serious happens to them. And he went on at United like lost, England lost like four one some against mm. someone. And he just basically tore into the youngsters, very critical of them. But again, it's the kind of thing that you don't sack someone over unless you want to get rid of them. Mm. Like Ferguson works out, he wants to get rid of you and then... Yeah, you're gone. Yeah, he works out. He, he wants good fellas, man. He wants, thank you, yeah. He, he, he wants out that he's got rid and then he finds a reason to get rid. Beckham but thought he was going is, to be made. Yeah. Keane thought he yeah. was, Keane, Keane, Keane was yeah. made, yeah. but He, he was made, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like when him, he got one of his Sopranos, he gets one of his own captains. Final thoughts on this. I enjoyed it. Yep. It's not going to go into the, the kind of center levels of sporting documentary, but it's not, it's not supposed to be. You know, it's very like, it's it's, not, it, will, yeah. it will give a lot of people exactly what they wanted from something like this. And I suppose I mean, at the end of the day, that's kind of all you really need, right? Yeah. Like the, for me, the standout moment in terms of the actual pure chills, I mean, obviously I'm biased towards the treble winning stuff. You know, it was genuinely talking. amazing though. That was, in, that, that mm. did, they do that bit really well. And the, only, the other thing I would add to it in terms of pure chill factor, like goosebumps factor was when Zidane basically goes over to Beckham at the end of that game and tries to recruit him from Madrid. And like, because Zidane and Beckham, mm-hmm. they have a really good friendship. And this documentary really makes you look at it and go, you're not envious because these people are like, you know, world-class stars, but you're like, the way they still talk about Beckham now, the affection mm. You're like, oh, there's, there's family holidays. We'll never know about those lot have been on and it's been wonderful. Like Zidane there, Figo there, all the rest of them. The fact they yeah. get on a plane and hang out with them after all this time and chill. Because, you know, football is a world that's extremely transient yeah. and friendships don't busy. always endure. It, busy, speaks, it speaks hugely to his personality and how he's regarded in football that people show out for him, speak as honestly they have and still be close to him. Like that, I think that reflects very well on his character as a human being that he is still so respected by, by so many, on, on a human level as much as a, much as a sporting one. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube. Car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. 
When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. We've gone quite long so far, but we're going yeah. we to talk about World Cup. It got announced a couple of weeks ago that the World Cup is going to take place in six countries yeah. across three continents, which even for FIFA is a bit of a, it's a decision. Mm. 2030 World Cup is going to be the 100th anniversary of the first World Cup, which took place in Uruguay. Yeah. So Uruguay, Argentina, Paraguay have got their first games at home yeah. in their own countries to commemorate the anniversary of the first World Cup. They will then fly to either... Spain, Portugal, or oh, Morocco, and finish the rest of their games. 48 teams, six countries, three continents. I'm guessing the carbon footprint of this World Cup Horror, might not be great. Yeah, it's, it's, it's awful. So the first game is taking place uh, in Montevideo. First World Cup was held in Uruguay. So it's basically the centenary of that. So there's a historical, look, there's, there's an exciting historical sweep. The World Cup being in Morocco after their incredible performance at the World Cup. So nice momentum for them. Incredible football culture there. But we can't get away from the climate stuff. It's just an absolute disaster. Like football is a pace setter. Football sets the tone. And, you know, we've seen it before. This is why football is such a dangerous, well, it's, it's, it's a great tool for social change, but also a dangerous one because football is normalizing all these things, authoritarian regimes but also just like irresponsible amounts of travel. Travel for the sake of travel. A World Cup. A World Cup everywhere. Basically, maximum flights, maximum travel, and, and for what? For football. Like, these times in life when you're like, football has outgrown it. its, its importance is outsized and its influence is outsized. Have it in one country, and you'd have everything in one place. I just, I don't get it. I don't get just have the World Cup in one place, but six different countries. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the thing, there's a worrying trend going on with FIFA now where it's either like, I mean, because 2034 is going to be Saudi Arabia, right? So if you look at then the world, the, that would have been the four World Cups prior mm. will be, well, no, let's go five. Russia, Qatar, three different countries, six different countries in three continents, and then Saudi Arabia. So the main reason that like Uruguay was never going to get this World Cup. It's just they don't have the infrastructure in the stadium and the stadium aren't up to scratch, right? No, right. So FIFA, fund it, make it up to scratch. Instead of putting this ginormous pressure on countries like what happened with Brazil, because what happened in Brazil, because of the, the following World Cups happening in Russia and then the one after that in Qatar, Brazil's kind of been forgotten a little bit mm. in terms of just how devastating that was for the country at the time, the World Cup yeah. and the and the Olympics, yeah. like amazing. You know, you were there apparently. I, I'm not. Talk, I don't like to talk about it. But from a football point of view, and you know, a World Cup in Brazil, it's never not going to be incredible as a yeah. as a spectacle. But the pressure that it put on that country, politically, economically, socially, because it got it got nasty really quickly. Corruption doubled the budget. I mean, I feel like we are always asking something of FIFA that they're just never going to give, and that's being responsible. Mm. They are incapable of actually doing something that will be 
that will generate genuine, long-term positivity. They're incapable of doing it. And the reason they're incapable of doing it is because the only thing that is at the forefront of their decision-making is revenue generation. Yeah, yeah. World Cup should be, in my opinion, something that benefits the country at no real general cost to their own. Mm. Football needs to modernise. The world has to modernise because of everything that's going on. So why is football immune to that in a sense of, why are we still thinking about World Cups in the way that we were 40 years ago, 50 years ago? Why aren't we reimagining what a World Cup could be? Why aren't we getting new thinkers and new ideas involved at the top levels of these decisions? It's because it's essentially just, it's not a, FIFA essentially should be a cooperative. Yeah. And it's just not. Also, they make these announcements under the cover of night with press releases because yeah. they've worked out in the age of social media, don't have, every, don't have anyone on a panel where, it can be tick, where the interview can be TikToked and memed. Like, in fact, the legacy, that speech that Infantino gave is now the legacy of FIFA. The one about being, today I feel gay, today I feel like a mm-hmm. market worker. FIFA have now decided we're never going to have that any again, ever again. Mm. From now on, and FIFA has always been like, a bit like the Vatican, right? But it's evolving more. What I mean by that is a city-state accountable only to itself, ultimately. Um, to whom its worshippers are an endless thrall. Um, also, the, gate, the, gatekeeper, the gatekeeper of the faith, that's what FIFA is. It's basically the Vatican. And we're going to see less and less transparency as time goes on. And you know, like when they announced the new, it's the new Pope, they have the smoke signals coming from the Vatican. This was the, press, this was the smoke signal from the Vatican, the press release that we got <laughs> about the World Cup plans. No big, like, you know, conference, just like, oh yeah, this is what you're going to get. Mm. This is what you, as the supporters of the game, loves you. This is what you're going to get, and you're just going to like it. And from a PR point of view, it's extremely effective because it takes out all the heat and light mm. in the conversation. We've now fundamentally accepted at some level the World Cup will probably be in, we'll probably be in Saudi Arabia in 2034. Which for them, it's an astonishing turnaround if you consider what the discourse was just three years ago around Qatar's ownerships. You know, Qatar walked, Qatar walked so Saudi could run. Think about that. Think about that, uh, that journey though. You have Russia, you have Qatar. Qatar takes all the heat. Mm. Then you have two World Cups in a row that are happening over multiple countries mm. and continents. And then Saudi Arabia comes along, which is one country, and everyone's just like, oh, great, a World Cup in one country again. Yeah, absolutely. Choreographed, absolutely choreographed. The, the, the problem with that World Cup is, or the World Cup announcement, unless you're going to do like a real deep dive on the details behind it, I'm at that point now where my first reaction was just like, what? And then my second reaction was, actually, yeah, of course this is happening. Yeah. Ange Postacogli was asked something in his press conference not too long ago. It was down to VAR, but he had this line in it where he says, this is probably the only time I'm happy I'm 58 and not 38. I don't know what the game is going to look like in 20 years' time, and I'm not sure that I would like it the way it's going. Wow. The final line of that quote, just so I don't take it fully out of context, is he says, I've always loved the fact that our game has more flaws in it. So he was talking about it from a, from a VAR perspective, right? Mm, mm. And there's also some stuff about, you know, people are talking about replays. He, he was, it was cautioning replays after mistakes because he was just like, that's, that's 365 a year mm. kind of thing. Yeah. But that line really stuck to me because the way that he said it, I was just like, yeah, do you know what? Actually, when, when is it going to be enough 
or when is it going to be too much that the game actually can't can't do it anymore like what is what is this what are we you know and I, I, there have been some a lot of like football things that have happened recently where we, we've been texting each other we're like are we the assholes here yeah is this um, is this like is there something going on that maybe we're not understanding because this just seems so incredibly strange and w- genuinely weird mm. if you actually sometimes step back and look at what's going on with football sometimes and this is just a genuine this is just another extension of that i think that who thought it would be a good idea to host six like a world cup in six countries in three continents expand it to 48 teams it's just Well, then the only, know, reason, the only reason it makes sense, and if, in football, if anything seems weird, money's always the answer. That is and it. Obviously, yeah. someone decided, money. how do we award the World Cup to Saudi Arabia, and how do we work back from that? How do we make it absolutely fail-safe? You know, and that's not even a specific criticism of Saudi Arabia, because if it wasn't them, it would be someone else. It would be someone else that wanted to acquire a World Cup. And it's, it's money first with FIFA, and I know that's a boring answer, but my point is it never has to be. It never had to be. This is a wider conversation. But as a society, I feel like a lot of the time, here I go all lofty. We're sometimes afraid to expect better. Mm. We sometimes think better doesn't exist. Oh, this is the way things are. No, they really can be better and they can even be excitingly so. Yeah, we were talking about this the other day, weren't we? Yeah. And about how when you have the resources of a sport like football, that appeal is never going to go away, actually. Yeah. If FIFA were like, the next World Cup is going to be in wherever and here's our commitment we're going to commit our budget to improving the stadium in that region that country help improve infrastructure around the world cup um help Im- invest in local facilities using you know i don't know like the good for the good of the game budget and you know commit to leaving that country in a much more positive position than it was before awarding the world cup no one is gonna go now, fuck FIFA, it's getting too woke. No, exactly. exactly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's going to lose zero appeal and it's actually going to be... Like, can you imagine if something like that happened? We'd be like, all right, what do we actually talk about now? Because FIFA have kind of nailed it. Right. No, don't we do? We just talk about the actual football, Ryan. Yes. We'd actually talk yes. about the actual football and we'd be able to go somewhere and be like, thank you, that's all we want and we don't like complaining about this nonsense. Like, we don't but like does it. That, but does that yeah. sound like a massively radical take to you? No, it doesn't. It's, the point you make is really something like, in terms of where a World Cup's going to be hosted and how it could be hosted, the idea you put forward that it's, I mean, it's football first and I feel tired saying this because it feels like it's too much to ask for. But is it really so harmful to think about a World Cup which did all the things it said it was trying to do? Helped build actual lasting infrastructure. So you went away and go, actually, the World Cup is, that's a legacy of the World Cup. That's a FIFA-funded project. That's a thing that exists, like a local playground or, or a load of buses or a rail network. Maybe if you have, I'm not going to highlight the country necessarily because I think it it then creates a different kind of debate whether you're endorsing the policies of the governments of some of these countries. But let's say any country that mm. you, you know, you go in and you improve infrastructure, you improve stadia, and you leave that country in a more positive way 
Yeah, then you left it. Or in a more positive position. The only difference, the, the, there's, a, there's another decision to be had there or conversation to be had with how you isolate that from potential corruption of governments because that's always going to be a case when that amount of money is flying around. But why not try? Absolutely. Why not try? Another edition of the Stadio wishes that the World Cup was a little bit more utopian. The Woke World Cup podcast. Woke World Cup, man. We're just fucking give us the money, man. Let us, let us do it. Where's the damn merch for that? We need to get on that. We do need to get on that. Let's just say it's in the works. There he is. <laughs> All right, everyone. We're going to leave you to it. We hope everyone's staying safe, staying well, like we mentioned at the top of the show. We hope that gave a bit of distraction. Mm. No show on Thursday. We'll be back on Monday. Don't forget to check the Stadio Actress Place on Spotify. Speaking of which, we're playing out on a brand new one on the great Strom label. This is a lovely one. A track called Fragile by Martina Basta. Anything you would like to add, Musa Wonga? Nothing further. Are you sure? Yeah. All good. Positive? <laughs> Absolutely positive. All right, everyone. Stay well. Have a lovely week. We'll be back with you next Monday. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.